0: Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I have a childhood memory. Uh, Maybe you have one like it. Hey, would you raise your hand if you're an oldest sibling? Raise your hand if you're an oldest sibling in your family. Yeah. Me too. My sisters and I were home alone on this occasion. I was in charge, so to speak. I was a pretty responsible oldest sibling, I'd like to think. Uh, But on this particular evening, we had discovered a bottle of some sort of polish, and we realized that if we sprayed it on the linoleum floor, we could run and then, like, (laughs) slide on it, like, really far. I'm talking about, like, really, really far. Like, uh, now, let me clarify. Kids, this is not a good idea. Uh, So I hope I don't regret telling this story. Um, But we had a lot of fun sliding over and over, from like basically like the front door of our house, like all the way into the kitchen, like around the corner, just like. and But then it was time to clean up before mom and dad got home. Uh, problem was we couldn't find a way to get this off the floor. The more we scrubbed, the more slippery it seemed to get, and this slipperiness kept spreading. Uh, we had kind of created an extreme hazard at this point. We had to give up trying to clean it because we were only making it worse. So I remember sitting there with my sisters, with our hearts pounding like a hundred miles an hour, like what is gonna happen to us when our parents get home and see this? And I'm rehearsing my lines over and over again in my head, trying to get it just right, so how can I soften up my parents right when they walk up the door and stop them from breaking their tailbones? And there we sat on the stairs in the foyer, hearts filled with dread about what was coming our way. And I wonder, have you ever felt that, Same sense of dread toward God. Like he's going to crush me for what I did. And if so, our scripture text today has something to say about that. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42? Isaiah 42. You'll find this on page 637 in the Bible in the chair in front of you if you're using that one. Today we take a one-week break from our Healthy Relationships series to be reminded of the heart of Jesus, toward those of us who have blown it, who have failed. When we pick up in the scripture this morning, God's people have blown it. Even though God had created a perfect world and had told humans what would lead to our flourishing, Adam, the very first human, fails to listen to God. And as a result, the beautiful order of this world gets thrown into disarray. And truth, goodness, and beauty are replaced by lies, by evil, by corruption, And so from that point on, we are reading the story of the Bible looking for how is this going to get fixed. Along the way, God raises up a man named Abraham. But Abraham dies without having fixed it. God calls a deliverer named Moses. But despite all the good Moses does, he can't fix it. For a while, God's people are governed by judges. They can't fix it. They get themselves a king like the other nations around them. But even David, their best king, couldn't fix it. And the corruption and the evil grows and grows until God's people are exiled from their land, forcibly removed from their homes, and resettled in Babylon by foreign invaders. All God's promises at this point in the story seem to have come to nothing. The people no longer even live in the land that they were promised, right? What hope is there? But Isaiah sees a ray of hope, and that hope is going to come in the form of a servant, who is going to play a part in Israel's deliverance. So we're going to reflect together this morning on Isaiah's introduction of this servant figure, which Megan read so well a moment ago. We'll see that these verses speak to the justice we need and to the one who can bring it. And in the middle, I'll just insert a brief comment about how we tend to try to fix the world ourselves. So we'll go, our need our response and God's solution. So first, our need, which is justice. One of our needs is our justice in this passage. Look at how many times this word justice comes up in just these four verses. That's the theme here. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you read that word justice. Uh, For whatever reason, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, when Batman shows up at a crime scene and says, I am justice which effectively means he's about to distribute punishment that fits the crime. But the Hebrew word translated justice here, uh, it's bigger than that. It, it's, it goes beyond just inflicting punishments that fit their crimes. If there was truly justice in the world, in this sense of justice, the Hebrew word mishpat, what we would see is restoration of the order and the beauty that have been overtaken by chaos since Adam blew it. In other words, mishpat is the pattern of the way things ought to be if all were right in the world. It's the blueprint you could think of it as. Just one example that illustrates this. Back when God gave Moses instructions for how to build the tabernacle back in Exodus 26, he said, here's the mishpat, right? It's like, here's the pattern, here's the blueprint. This is what the tabernacle should look like. And in the same way, there's a pattern of life, too, that God knows is most suited to our flourishing. And so in Isaiah's day, mishpat, justice, is such a big deal because it's nowhere to be found. Greed and violence are rampant. The powerful are crushing the powerless who can't do anything about it. Everyone's worshiping whatever God they want, however seems best to them. And so when Isaiah's readers read, this servant is coming to bring justice, this would have met a deep yearning in their hearts. They would have said, please hurry. The fabric of society is broken. We desperately need a restoration of mishpat justice. And you and I, we're beginning to know a little of that feeling, aren't we? Democrats and Republicans, those on team free market, those on team regulation, those sympathetic to Israel, those sympathetic to Palestine, we we seem to have all reached a consensus on one thing, that our, our collective future looks bleak. Regardless of our affiliations, not one of us will turn on the news this evening and say, you know what, this is the way life was meant to be. As a society, we've chased other gods, and like God's people almost 3,000 years ago in Isaiah's day, we're finding out where that gets us. Is there any hope for a restoration of mishpat, justice, of the way things are supposed to be? Well our response next this is just a brief expansion on our need for justice really by pointing out how you and I we've made our problem worse because over the course of human history we've responded to this justice problem that we all feel by saying over and over oh oh, we know how to fix this if we implement this political agenda or if we uh, put in place this educational system or this economic plan or this military strategy then we will overcome those who have created this injustice in the first place and will remake society the way society was always supposed to be. But think about what that requires, right? It requires drawing a line somewhere between good and evil such that we can identify the good folks, put them over here, and the evil folks over here, draw a line between the two groups. As such, where the line gets drawn depends entirely on who's drawing the line, right? For example, just a few examples. Socialists think the rich ownership class, they're the evil ones over here who have destroyed Mishpat, right? Hamas and the Nazis before them think the Jews are the evil ones who have destroyed Mishpat, right? Here in America, some make America great again types think immigrants, the unpatriotic over there, they're the evil ones who have destroyed Mishpat. Everybody's got an idea of who's at fault. Who's the one who's destroyed Mishpat, right? Whoever is offering the solution. It tends to take the same contours, though. They, of course, draw the lines in such a way that they themselves are unquestionably on the good side of the line. And what they're advocating is, hey, put power in the hands of us good folks over here on this side. If you give us power, then we can prevent the evil folks over there from continuing to mess things up. And then we'll have Mishpat whatever word they use to describe mishpat. The problem, of course, is that this approach only ever serves to tear the fabric of society more than it was already torn. Because as the wisest folks inside and outside the Christian tradition over the centuries have recognized, the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart, every single one. When we absolve ourselves of guilt in the breaking of mishpat, as though that's not something we've done, that's just delusional self-worship. Because in reality, none of us is totally on the good side of the line. Not any single one of us. Right? If mishpat is the blueprint for how life is supposed to be, none of us can stand up next to the blueprint and say, Hey, look at the blueprint. Look how, see how closely I fit the pattern shown? That said... If attempting to silence or eliminate the unjust only leads to an acceleration of injustice, what hope is there that we could ever get out of this mess? What's the alternative? Who can rescue us? God's solution is the servant in this passage, right? Isaiah's answer isn't what we might expect. We might expect him to introduce us at this point to a military hero or an educator guru, or a conquering king. In fact, in the last chapter, the one before this one, chapter 41, Isaiah foretold a conquering king coming in the future. He said, he'll come from the north. north, He'll march over enemy rulers like they're mud. Later in the book, we'll find out he's talking about King Cyrus of Persia. Is that who's gonna restore justice? No. In our chapter 42 this morning, Isaiah says, the one we've been waiting for is not like mighty King Cyrus from chapter 41. The one we've been waiting for is... A servant. It's how the chapter starts. This is my servant. Justice is coming through a servant? How can that be? Well, for one thing, this servant is strengthened by God, which with God's Spirit on him, meaning that his power comes not from his physical strength or his charisma or his persuasiveness, but rather from a direct connection to the divine. This servant has been chosen by God. Unlike all the powerful Cyrus clones that we've championed on our own wisdom without first finding out what God thought about them. God delights in this servant that Isaiah speaks of. Unlike our wannabe saviors that God called detestable back in chapter 41. This servant is the one who will bring the justice that so many others have failed to bring us. So much so that even faraway Gentiles will turn to him for the salvation he brings. Verse 1 and verse 4. So who is this servant? It would have been tricky to identify him if you were one of Isaiah's original readers. Because while in some ways this servant really fits Jewish folks' expectations for the long-awaited Messiah, in other ways he doesn't. Like restoring mishpat justice, that sounds like Messiah. Other passages about Messiah talk about that. Reaching the Gentiles... The early chapters of Isaiah imply that's what Messiah will do. So, so maybe this servant in Isaiah uh, is the Messiah, right? Uh, the long awaited descendant of David who will take up David's throne and rescue God's people as conquering king. Maybe it's the same person. But wait, the Messiah not crying out or shouting, verse 2? His voice not being heard in the streets? Right? Messiah bringing justice using an approach so gentle that he wouldn't break a bruised reed, that he wouldn't put out a smoldering wick? What? No, this can't be Messiah, right? Messiah, we, we need a Messiah who's tough enough to bring about deliverance from our oppressors, don't we? See the problem? And, and that's one reason why. If you sat down this week with the rabbi at your local synagogue, Here to ask him about this, he would tell you probably that the servant spoken of in Isaiah 42 is not speaking of the Messiah. It's speaking of Israel as a whole, the nation. Israel is the servant in Jewish scholarly consensus, right? And listen, one day we'll preach through all of the servant songs in Isaiah and we'll see. There is plenty of language in Isaiah's servant songs that point in just that direction. The servant's Israel. But then what our Jewish friends have to wrestle with and what we all have to wrestle with is, what do we do with language like this in Isaiah's servant songs? Right, Isaiah forty-nine, a few chapters after this, and now says the Lord, form me me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. How, if the servant is Israel, how is Israel going to bring Israel to be gathered again? Right, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob. This is an individual being spoken of in Isaiah forty-nine, right? Or chapter fifty, verse ten: Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you in the nation of Israel fears the Lord and listens to his servant? They're not not one and the same, Israel and the servant, right? How do we deal with the fact that even in the very chapter that we are considering this morning, we have both a failing servant in Isaiah 42, verses 18 and 19. Look at what he says. Who is blind but my servant or deaf like my messenger I'm sending? Who's blind like my dedicated one or blind like the servant of the Lord? There's a failing servant later in this chapter. Contrasted with... The verses we're looking at in which the servant does not fail, he is bringing justice, right? When you put all that together, it certainly seems like while some of Isaiah's references to the servant refer to Israel as a whole, and they're failing in their role as the servant, there are others that only make sense if they refer to an ideal individual within Israel who stands as a representative of the nation, Fulfilling the nation's calling, living up to all the mishpat justice that the nation was always supposed to live up to but never did. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. He comes along a full seven centuries after Isaiah, so Isaiah called this one way in advance. And how does the story of Jesus align with what we've seen? Well, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, God himself is heard by the crowds in an audible voice speaking over Jesus. And when God speaks about Jesus... Which ancient scripture does he quote? He quotes two of them. He says, at Jesus' baptism, You are my beloved son, which is from Psalm 2. Jewish scholars recognize the reference to Psalm 2 about the Messiah King who would come as an heir to David's throne. And then he combines it with, with you I'm well pleased, which is a reference to our Isaiah 42 text this morning about the servant. You see what God just did in Mark 1 11? By combining Psalm 2 and and Isaiah 42, our our God is saying in one moment that both the Hebrew Bible's prophecies about the Messiah and Isaiah's prophecies about the servant were telling us about one and the same person, the man Jesus Christ. And as Jesus' followers watch him in the years after this, they say, wait, wait, wait. That's Isaiah 42 we're seeing. Look at it in Matthew 12. The crowds are following him. He's healing. He's warning people not to make him known. And Matthew says that's so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes our passage from Isaiah 42. What makes the people around Jesus say that he's a fulfillment of Isaiah's servant? Well, he's not Cyrus, crashing through town and stomping on everyone in his way. Instead, his days are filled with healing sick people and telling them to keep quiet about it. Raising the dead, but not as a publicity stunt. In other words, he's bringing mishpat, but not in the way that any human leaders have ever sought to do it. It just looks kind of like this. He will not cry. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He won't break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he's led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. If you've never taken the time to read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, You'll find there a Jesus who heals people on the Sabbath only to face his opponent's anger at him for breaking Sabbath by working. You'll find there a Jesus who casts out demons from an afflicted person only to hear his opponents accuse him of being possessed by a demon himself. And all along he's tenderly binding up one bruised reed after another in hopes that these damaged ones will be restored. While his opponents are pointing fingers at these poor, needy people, snapping the bruised reeds and stomping out the wicks, Jesus is receiving them with open arms. I wonder if you're in a season of life in which you can identify with the bruised reed or the smoldering wick. Like maybe it all seems so fragile for you right now. Maybe even coming here this morning felt risky. Because you were worried you'd find yourself on the wrong end of that one word of religious condemnation that might just break you. Life circumstances have beaten you down, but worse than that, you've come to realize that many of your wounds are actually self-inflicted. You've learned the hard way that you can't pretend to be standing on the right side of the line between good and evil. Now that line cuts right through you with that mix of good and evil in your own heart and as such, you sense that you're at risk of getting crushed under God's foot. The way so many got crushed under the foot of King Cyrus. Friend, God's word for you this morning in Christ is not a word of condemnation. Amen? What heaven saw fit to send you this morning isn't a scolding. As you wait on the stairs, so to speak, in the foyer to face God and own up to your sin, his face towards you is not a scowl. Jesus has tenderly stooped down to us with an arm around the shoulder to restore us in our brokenness. Not because he thinks our sin is no big deal. No, no, no. He knows its weight more than we ever will. No, he's gentle with us simply because that's his heart for his people. And so our big idea today is this because Jesus is tender toward the broken, let's come to him for justice. Why are we trying to figure it out ourselves? Why make it worse? Let's come to him for justice. If our picture of God is the stern disciplinarian scowling at us for our errors, let's let this Bible correct us. Our imaginations of God recoiling at the sight of us, those those are just a blown up version of ourselves projected onto him. That's the way we are toward others who have sinned against us, not the way he is when we've sinned against him. I love the way Dane Ortland captures it. He says, As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you'll fail to see how you can be saved. But as long as you look to Jesus, you'll fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Never met Jesus? There's a sense in which he is terrifying because he's God. The proud of heart who shake their fists at him will meet him wielding his sword. But if any one of us comes to him as a bruised reed, we can be as certain as we are of anything on this earth that he will not break us. The only prerequisite to be received tenderly by Jesus is that we come to him humbly, acknowledging our need. And again, I can't say it better than Dane Ortland. One more quote from him his book Gentle and Lowly. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of our sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we'll experience a judgment so fierce it'll be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral no matter what you've done. If you approach Jesus this morning with remorse for your sin and with a heart yearning to be reconciled to him, he'll come running to you, wrap you in his arms. Just tell him that's what you want, out loud or in your heart, and the floodgates of his mercy will be unleashed on you. For those of us who have already experienced that initial flood of mercy washing over us somewhere along the way, Let's allow him to shape our lives such that we increasingly match his blueprint. He doesn't make the world right the way our society tries to make the world right. He's gentle and lowly in heart, eager to bind up the broken. May we be miniature replicas of the same in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, gentle in heart, tender toward the broken, but not in order to try to compel his heart to be loving towards us by our good deeds. Rather, Because we're people that know that we're already loved by him because of who he is. And whose gratitude, therefore, makes us yearn to imitate his gentle tenderness. Let's pray. Lord, that's who we want to be because that's what we've seen in you. And it's been refreshing to us in a world in which the finger is always being pointed at us. A world in which... People are quick to break a bruised reed. are quick to stomp out a smoldering wick. A world in which everybody's trying to draw lines between who's good and who's evil and and put themselves on the right side of that line. Lord, we want to be a people who humble ourselves to say, no, that that line runs through me. I've got evil in my own heart. We want to be people who throw ourselves upon your mercy. Thank you that we can do so confident that when we do, we'll be received with tenderness, with gentleness. For Jesus' sake.